Beloved, if you have your Bible there, let's turn then to the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And um, we're going to be reading from verse 14 today until the end of the chapter. It struck me this week that I have only one chapter left, really. And I was like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to pick something else later on. It's in the back of your Bible. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. Okay, beginning in verse, verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he did not find an opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched to a blazing fire, to a darkness, a gloom, a storm, to the blast of a trumpet, to the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that, they, that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time. But now he has promised, yet once more I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken and is created, or, and that is created things. So that what is not shaken might, be, might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. The writer is wrapping up his sermon speech, little uh, anduct, if you want to put it that way, or whatever he's doing. And he, when, whenever you're, 
you're writing a sermon and, and you give your introduction and your main body and then you, you, you do your conclusion. You come down and normally you wrap everything up in the conclusion and that's what he's trying to do here. Does he do it successfully or not? I don't know. But he's doing it. And he's put forward the case of Jesus Christ being supreme over everything else. Every man-made object, every person whom God has raised up in the Old Testament, every heavenly being, even the very word, the law of God, Jesus Christ is superior to those things. That life comes through Him and through Him alone. And in doing so, He's trying to strengthen He's trying to encourage. He's trying to embolden weakened believers. A people who are literally trembling. A people who are literally afraid for their lives and the lives of their children. Not just their physical life, but their well-being. Remember that at at the time of this persecution, their homes were being taken from them, their lands were taken, being taken from them, everything was being confiscated as a punishment as well as a fine because they were the Jews thought of them as heretics and the, the, they were having to pay the cost for that and so the Christians were very unstable there was a lot of compromising a lot of uh, Being a Christian but playing the part as just a normal religious person. And we all know this again. Christians no longer had to go up up to the temple to offer up a sacrifice for sin. For Jesus Christ has paid for their sin. But the rest of their families, they all went. They all participated. They all carried on in the traditions of their elders, of their cultural understandings. And you know, at this time of year we all were very aware of that, aren't we? We have confirmation going on at the moment. And, uh, you know, people ask me, so are your boys getting confirmed this year? You know, and I have to say, no, we, we, we don't do that. We're, we're, we're not Lutherans. And they're kind of like, you know, the, you can see the question mark on their eyes as if somehow, in some way, we're committing abuse or something like this here. But the writer here is trying to encourage them and also us in our day. That we have the right to be confident in Jesus and in His work. And in this last part, and from verse 14, it's the last warning. I think it's the fifth warning in the book of Hebrews about not fully trusting, about holding back, about compromising, about starting but not finishing. It's a warning to those who are believers that they are to continue on in the way and not to, again, compromise or do things by half measures just for the comfortability of those around them. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable because if you feel uncomfortable, you might persecute me. Therefore, I'm going to make you feel comfortable by being a chameleon, by reflecting you, by just allowing you to think that I am like you or there is no difference and somehow in some way denying the sacrifice of Christ. It's the sin of the Judaizers. Do you remember the Judaizers? Those who said, yes, it's faith in Jesus Christ, but also you must follow the law of Moses. You must be circumcised. You must be, go through all the different ceremonies and stuff. And they did that in order that... They might fit in. 
that they might continue in their, their comfortable pattern that they knew and were used to. And so here in this portion of Scripture, the writer, the Holy Spirit through the writer is warning us of the consequences of drawing back. He's reminding them perhaps the last time that there are consequences to drawing back. And in some cases, irreversible consequences. Again, he talked about the pursuing peace and holiness with everyone. That we are not to go around causing problems. We all know of when people are, especially young men, when they are awakened to the the truth of biblical teaching, sometimes they go into the cage rage stage. It's a nice, easy way to say it. Where people are argumentative. And all they want to do is like arm wrestle over the the doctrines and they get really angry or enthusiastic and passionate and can come across angry. And they cause conflict. I'm right and you're wrong. Ha ha. And they, they they get in the face of whoever they're talking to. The Bible says we're not to do that. The Bible says we're not to pursue strife and conflict. And division, but rather to pursue peace. And to do it in a holy way. Not in a way of compromise. Not in a way that sacrifices your values or denies Christ. But in such a way as the eye is drawn to Jesus. In such a way that people speak highly of you. They might not agree with you. They might not like what you're saying. But they cannot speak badly of how you're doing things. Of how you present yourself. And he makes the example here. Or sorry, he goes on through it. says, make sure that there's no one falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root springs up causing trouble and defilement. And again, it's the idea of having, not having unconverted church members. Not allowing people who are not Christians who have fallen short of the grace. They've come so far, but they haven't taken that last step. There's an obvious lack in their experience. But they like the congregation. They enjoy being here. They like everybody. It's beneficial to them. And they're enthusiastic. They want to be involved. And so somehow, in some way, we involve them. Now, we might think to ourselves, that could never happen. Let me take you to... Every other church in Jakobstad. Uh, if you go into the country churches, they are almost 95% unbelievers, second generation, third generation Christian. People who are the grandchildren of the original Christians. Who, and they have inherited the building. They have inherited this lifestyle. You ask them, are you a believer? Yeah, I'm a Baptist. No, but are you a believer? Well, uh, you know, my... My parents were Baptists and I'm about, and it's been inherited to them. And they have fallen short of that grace. They have not asked the Lord Jesus Christ, and I use this old language, into their heart. They have not repented. They're just part of the community. They're just part of the... the they've always been there. I knew some older men many years ago. Um, one of the local churches where we live asked, would I be interested in pastoring them? 
and um, and there's this older gentleman. Some of these might know him, so I'm not going to mention his name. Lovely man, absolutely lovely man, a Christian man. I would say Christian man with a little C. And he and I were talking, and um, and I suddenly realized this man does not know the gospel. This man does not know the gospel. And I asked him, when did you put your faith in Jesus? Because he was a leader in the church. He had been a leader in their movement. When did you personally put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I've never had that experience yet. But I believe that you know, one day the Lord will perhaps born again me or whatever he said. I can't remember the expression. But I always was shocked by the fact that he said, He'd never had that experience. He'd never been born again. But he was a leader in the community. And, and he's a lovely man. I really like him. But he's fallen short. And the Bible warns us not to allow that to happen. And he was speaking to the, to the people of that generation and to the people of our generation. Because in our compromise and in our desperation to fit in, sometimes we can let the standard slip. And we should not, we, we cannot. And he tells us why. Because it will cause trouble and it will end up defiling many, causing arguments and fights and bad feelings. And people saying things they shouldn't say, doing things they shouldn't do, feeling in a way that is offended and offense, causes offense. And then verse 16 make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau. Again, it's the idea of, of uh, church purity. You say, well, well, the idea of having a man who divorces his wife and then within the congregation and then begins to date another woman from the congregation. And they move in together. You say, well, that couldn't happen. It does happen. I know cases where it's happened. But they move in together and they live together. Or she lives in her house and he lives in his house, but they stay over. You know? They're not living together, they just stay over. Or a person who cheats on their taxes. <laughs> Daniel's like, Amen. <laughs> cheats on their taxes, embezzles money. Don't say a man there, brother. Don't say a man. Let's keep it inside. Fakes insurance claims. We've seen that, haven't we? Fakes insurance claims. These people who have come so far, but there is no new birth experience within them. They want to be, they want to be, but their life demonstrates that they are holding back in somehow in some way. And like Esau, they regard the future blessing of faith in Christ, or the, sorry, of being in heaven together with Christ, through faith in Christ, as something worthless in this world. Now, we all know the story of Esau, don't we? Esau, he was that rugged, the first twin, the big guy, hairy, caveman, hunter kind of guy, manly man. And he went out hunting, he came back and he was really hungry and his brother was making the, uh, the porridge made of lentils, lentil stew or lentil soup, whatever it was. 
And he said, give me some of that, because I'm really, I'm, I'm about to die, I'm so hungry. Very dramatic. And uh, the younger brother said, of course, uh, yeah, no problem, but give me your birthright. And older brother thought, there's no, what does that mean? It's not real. I don't really. And he sold him his birthright. He gave him all of that which was to be his, all of his father's belongings, all of his father's wealth, all the things that should have been his, his father's empire. And he gave it all up for a bowl of soup. And when the day came that he was supposed to inherit it, he couldn't because it was gone. By trickery, we all know this, but still, it was gone. And he, the Bible says here again, he sought it with tears. Can we not just give it back? But he'd lost it. It was, and it wasn't the, the tears of repentance. They were tears of regret. Regret because he didn't get what he wanted. What, he, what should have been his, but he lost it. Because he did not value life with Christ he valued rather his life at that present moment, what he had there and then, rather than that which God had for him in the future. And he lost it, and there was no getting it back. And that's a warning to us all that we shouldn't be so engrossed in the things of this world. Remember Jesus warning us about the, the seed that fell among the thorns? Do you remember that part of the, the parable? Is those who heard the word and believed in it and it grew up within them, it responded. But the desires and the things of this world choked the life out of it so that it never grew to maturity. It was mutated, warped, destroyed. And that person never entered into heaven because they were so impassioned and distracted by the things of this world. And again, the Bible tells us to make sure that there isn't that kind of person in church life. In the community of, of church. Why? Because ultimately they lead to the bitter root of division, of, of um, trouble and defiling. So that's why we have, we, we have church discipline. That's why we have church com conversations. Not that we, we jump on people and, and uh, immediately attack them or things like this. Because we, we do all things pursuing peace and in holiness. We do it for that person's good. We don't do it to punish them. But rather to try and help them come to the right understanding of their circumstances. So we are not to be like that. We're not to allow that to exist within the community of the church. And then he goes on in verse 18 to tell us why. Because, and then he paints this really wonderful picture of the Old Testament when Israel met with God upon the mountain and there was the fire, the voice, this great spectacle of God being there. And it was great and terrible and the consequences of rejecting God when he spoke in that circumstances was earthly death. Even if an animal was to touch the mountain where God was speaking from, that animal was to be put to death. And I always wondered to myself, how can that be? Because where I come from, mountains are, are small and long, if you know what I mean. But this, I've seen a picture of this particular mountain, and it, it's basically like half a loaf of bread stuck 
in a flat plane. It just rises up like this. And again, the Bible says that even the commandment was if even an animal was to touch that, it was to be stoned. Because so severe, so powerful was the command. They were to take it seriously. It was to express to their understanding, to leave the impression that this is important. There's consequences to breaking this law that's being given to you. And he said, if that is the consequence, if that's how it was back then, we have an experience much greater than theirs. Though they saw God with their eyes, well, he was veiled in clouds and fire and thunder. But we, we have been spoken to by someone else. And again, it, I love this picture. This is our living experience. As Christians, this is your living experience. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, the, the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is gone, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, and to the sprinkling of the blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. That's our living experience. That's the, the reality in which we live. You might not see it with your eyes, but it's more real than the mountain that was on fire and with the thunders. That's passed away. This is eternal. This stands, and though we might not see it with these eyes now, it stands more real than Jerusalem did 2,000 years ago. Jerusalem 2,000 years ago the Mount Zion, the, the actual Zion Mount, is gone. All that's left now is that one wall, the wheeling wall, you know, the foundational wall that the, you see all these guys doing that, headbanging it. It's gone. It's no longer alive. That was that mountain. If you go back even further to the, the mountain where Moses and his people had that experience, archaeologists are still d- disputing and dis- disagreeing over which mountain it actually was. Those things have passed away. They were temporary. They were temporal. But that experience that we have is eternal and can never be shaken, can never pass away, can never erode. It stands as a a testimony to the fullness of what God has done. So it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing to reject God, to hear the words and say... I don't know, I don't really care. Indeed, those who took it passively or, or disinterestedly in the olden times, in Moses' day, were dealt with severely. How much more severely will we be dealt with in the future if we dismiss the gift of God, the warning of God, the acts of God on our behalf? In verse 25, he says, See that you do not reject the one who speaks. I heard a pastor once say that this is about pastors. Don't reject me. It's not about pastors. It's who is the one that speaks? Well, if you go to the very first chapter of Hebrews in verse 2, it says this. In these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. The one who speaks is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, be careful you don't reject him. Don't reject the one who is speaking to you. 
It's very simple sometimes to dismiss the preacher. You know, we're boring, we're funny looking, you know, we're whatever. And it's very easy to kind of say, well, it's only, it's only, it's only Daniel speaking. It's only Joel speaking. It's only Kyle speaking. It doesn't really matter. And you can become so disinterested. But you have to see beyond that. It's not just Daniel, Joel, or Kyle. It's not just the, 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 the preacher at the front. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself is reaching out to you. It's him who is speaking to you. He, through his sovereign act of providence, has made it so that you are here, that you are hearing this, that you are being exposed to these things. And he is communicating to you. We're just a vehicle. But it's him through whom the message is coming. We're the ambassador, the co-laborer, the deliverer of the message. He is the one who has sent the message. And the Bible says that we are to be very careful not to reject the one who speaks. And he goes on, For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. You know, it's, I think it's funny, sadly funny, that, that people will, you know, I, I once was in a meeting where the young man was under tremendous uh, con- uh, conviction of the Spirit. He was trembling. He knew, he knew that he, he should give his life to Christ. He knew that if he was to die that moment that where he would spend eternity. And he felt you know, the, the calling of God in a true and real sense. And the pastor asked the people to put up their hands. You know, if you feel, if you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ this evening. And uh, if God is moving your heart, lift up your hand. And the young man sat on his hands. Like literally sat on his hands. And, um, and the pastor went on for about 20 minutes, of course. And uh, the young man basically, I could see him getting lower and lower and lower in his, in his seat. And as soon as the pastor said, well, said the prayer and said amen, and we began to sing our next song, the young man got up off his chair and left the building. Left the, and I, I met him a few days later, and I said to him, I, I, I saw, I, know, I was at the front, by the way. That's why I saw, I was at the front singing. I used to be a singer in church. And, um, and I, I was watching. And I said, I saw on Sunday that you were really feeling convicted. And he says, yeah, I got out of there just in time. Oh, he said, they nearly got me. They nearly got me. And he was rejoicing almost that somehow in some way that he, he escaped Christ. And he tried to make little of it and joke about it. Next time, next time maybe. And I said, don't you understand that the Bible says the Spirit of God will not always struggle or strive with man that God will call you but if you say no he might respect your no and never again call you you might never have the opportunity though you want to but because you come with an unrepentant heart your want is out of selfish things you just want to escape hell you don't want Christ you want to repent from your sin you just want to escape Judgment, but not coming to f- in faith in Christ, and uh, and he just kind of shrugged it off, just kind of shrugged it off. 
It is possible to say no to God. Happens every day. People live in rebellion. But there is a risk. I would say there's a certainty. If those in the Old Testament came under divine judgment and fire immediately, how much more when we say no to the very one who has given his life in order that we might live? It's not a case of that he's just coming to you and saying, you know, do what I want. He's offering you life. He's offering you his life and offering to take your life upon him, to take the responsibility of your life debt to God, the responsibility of your sins before God. And when we say no, what other sacrifice is there available for us? If you say no to Christ, if you deny him and say, no, you're not enough, I I don't want you, I don't want you involved in my life. Then one day when you stand before God, because the Bible says all men must must die, all men must die, and then comes judgment. Two things are certain in your life. You will one day die, and then one day you will stand before God in judgment. And on that day, if you've denied Christ, if you've rejected Him, if you have said that you're okay by yourself, what recompense, what sacrifice, how will you justify your own sins? How will you clear your debt before God? What thing of worth, what good deed of worth will you bring to satisfy God's righteous anger? And the answer is nothing. You can't, you won't. The Bible says that all of your good deeds, whatever you do in your life, in order to try and please God, it's like a dirty diaper. All of your good deeds are like filthy rags, like a baby's dirty diaper. Imagine bringing that diaper to the girl that you love for the whatever, and you say, this is how I feel about you. This is what I, oh, all of my feelings, all of my, my passion, dirty diaper. A big green one, you know, like flies and stuff. That would not be appreciated. Or imagine if you went to the bank and you said, I don't have any money anymore. Ah, uh, but I do have this. And you take a, a diaper, not even a baby's diaper, a grown-up diaper, a filthy rag. And you say to the bank manager, there you go. Our, our, that should clear my account. The bank manager's going to look at you and go, get out of my office. You a mad person? Or you go to Prisma and you try and pay the lady at the casa with, a, with your dirty diaper. A filthy rag. Something stinking and smelly with flies on it. And you say, this is to pay for my groceries. It's not going to work. Beloved, we are warned not to, to take the words of Jesus too lightly or to ignore them or to reject them because the consequences of doing so are severe. When Christ offers you mercy, take it. Pursue it. Seek after it. Christ died for you that you might live. Why then choose death? Again, we live in a place where 
sin has become righteousness and righteousness is regarded as sin. I talked to a lady not so long ago and, uh, and she actually said to me, a Christian lady actually said to me, but what is sin? What is sin? Meaning that, that she didn't think that sin existed anymore. That you could just do as you please and God doesn't care. The Bible says that his voice shook heaven at that time. And one day when he returns, his voice shall shake, not just the, the earth, but the heavens as well. And the Bible says that all things shall be made new. His judgment will be poured out. And everything that's around us, this world in which we live, this physical realm, shall be done away with. It shall end. Modern man has the, the false precept or concept that time is like a clock. The modern clock has kind of ruined us. Because the second hand just keeps going round and round and round. And we think that time just continues, don't we? Just keeps on going and going and going. And we, we don't have the, the, the old world concept of time. They you had candles. Ever seen a time candle? An hour candle where it has all the hours marked and you light it and it, it burns down and you realized, you know, time has passed away. You burn your time. Or you, the egg timer. You know when you turn the sands and the sands all run down and you realize that time has passed away and you'll never get that time passed, uh, that time back again. We must... As Christians and as, as human beings, I don't even just think as Christians, as human beings, remember and recognize that time is not infinite. Infinite? Infinite? It has a fixed end. There is coming a moment when Christ shall return and that will be the end. But the Bible says here that for we who believe that we should be grateful. It says that therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Christians, be thankful. And it's not a case of just like, phew, I'm grateful. Like that young man who escaped the, uh, the altar call from my old church. He was grateful. But rather than full of thanks, full of joy. Not just because of what Christ has done, but for what he is coming to do. Remember, these people were sad and broken and hesitant and fearful. And on the verge of compromise because they felt that that the, the world in which they were living was against them. And that they were at the bottom of the pile. And they were about to give in everything so that they might gain a little bit of respite, a little bit of refuge, a little bit of release. But here the, the writer is saying, carry on, keep going, don't give up, don't give in. Because in the end we win and in the end we inherit a kingdom that will not pass away. It shall not be shaken. 
this life and all that's in it will pass away, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. And it says here, with reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. I, I've even, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, on the 12th of July every year, the same date we, our church was born, 12th of July, first service we ever had was on Sunday the 12th of July. They have a, on the 11th night, 12th of July, they have a bonfire. If you look up Northern Ireland, they have bonfires. They celebrate a good victory of a battle 400 years ago. Nonsense. And these are huge bonfires, so big that they actually melt houses that are around them and stuff. They're ridiculously huge. They're giant. And when they burn down, you see the fire brigades having to come and put out the ashes because they burn so hot that they literally, they melt the houses that are around them. They build them far too close to the, the surrounds. And you see these firemen sometimes with their hoses walking through these blazing fires. Like, like, like um, Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego type experience, you know, with that. But the, the heat from those fires is so strong from those bonfires. And again, I'm talking giant things. They're made with those pallets and stuff. Giant but the, the heat from them is so strong that they have melted the glass in cars' windscreens. They've melted the glass on the houses. Imagine your house overlooking the place where they have the bonfire and the glass on your window begins to melt because the fire is so hot. The plants in your garden dying because of the heat of that fire. Again, it's immense and crazy. The Bible compares God in his fullness and his reality to a consuming fire. A fire that takes everything. He's not some small thing. A consuming fire in the ancient world was a terrifying thing. Even still today, a consuming fire. You think of the forest fires in Canada or in um, California where they just they took whole towns, whole villages were consumed by these fires. They couldn't put them out. They've had to take uh, firemen from South Africa, from other countries to come and fight the fires in Canada because the fires are so terrible that they can't put them out. The Bible compares our God to a consuming fire, something that cannot be stopped by natural means. But yet we are called to be thankful and to be grateful. To not give up, not to give in, not to waver in our faith, but to press on and persevere. Because we know our minds are armed with the truth of who God is and what He's done for us and the, the community that we are a part of. And that the existence, the reality in which people live in here and around us is a false narrative. It's a false reality. They're like Esau. They're living for today with no concept of that which comes next. We are called not to be like that. Let us live victoriously. Let us continue in the way of faith powerfully and boldly. Not timidly, not hiding ourselves, not compromising by saying nothing, but pressing on, being bold, knowing that in the end we win. And also being assured that Christ will return. Not giving up in our faith, saying, well, 
Yeah, it's been 2,000 years. He hasn't come yet. He's never going to come. We're closer now than we've ever been before. Think of time not as the clock just going round, but as the sand in the hourglass, as the candle burning down. Time is ticking away. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask you that you'd help us. Lord, we are very like the, the Hebrews of this generation, of that generation, Lord. We're often very tempted to compromise, often very tempted just to fit in and to say nothing. Often very tempted, Lord, just to hide away and do nothing and allow the world to pass us by. So often, Lord, we do try and justify ourselves through our works, Lord, through our intentions, through our, our relations. Lord, I pray you'd help us. Help us, Lord, to promote the Lord Jesus Christ, to know him, to lift him up. Indeed, Lord, you have said, if you be lifted up from the world, you would draw all men unto you. Lord, help us. For we know that at times we <sighs> unconsciously hide you, Lord. Please forgive us. And help us to be bold and to be strong, to be thankful, to pursue peace and holiness, that we might know you and see you. Lord, make real to us in our minds the reality of the kingdom that is to come. Lord, remind us of the fullness and the weight of our sin. And how, Lord, that sin is a real thing. And how, Lord, it, it, with every day, the debt gets bigger. And indeed, the Bible says that the wages of sin are death. That every sin committed against you, every act of rebellion, every denial of you, Lord, is a death sentence upon us. Oh, Lord, we ask of you, we beg of you, come quickly, Lord, and enliven us, quicken us, grant us faith. Lord, we pray this for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen.